in the same way I shared on stage in 2013, you know, those deep wounds that just we don't speak of normally. And yet, if it, when the space is there, they can, there's an opportunity for them to be shared, to come out. And that's, it's just been amazing. Coaching Life Podcast, where we peel back the bull crap and brush away any photoshopping to give you an unfiltered look at what it's like to live a coaching life. Here we are, episode 82, I believe. And as I said many times on this podcast, one of the beauties of this profession is the diversity, um, not just of the style of coaches, but also the manner in which um, people have come into this profession and hence are yeah, there's, there's such a diversity. I guess that's why we're, we're on episode 82 of this podcast. And um, I first met today's guest at a coaching event in California, 2013, late 2013, an event I know, well, there was quite a big event for him. I think it was quite an emotional one. Maybe we'll touch on that if he's willing to share a little. Um, and coming out of that event, probably like most people in the room who were there, certainly applies to me, had a vision of where he'd like to take his coaching business. Um, and I thought, well, it's cool to have this conver have a conversation to see really how did things go? What's 2013? So that's what seven years ago, coming up to seven years ago. Um, best paid plans and all of that. Um, I don't think things have worked out quite as originally planned. They haven't certainly hadn't for me. Um, and I often suggest to my clients that here never looks like it did when it was there. So uh, let's explore. Let's explore what 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 there was like and what here is like okay a very warm welcome welcome to david taylor hello hello phil <laughs> thank you for that uh, introduction and uh, it's good to talk to you <laughs> and you yeah beautiful to just i mean we had that we had a really wonderful conversation to sort of catch up a little bit last week which is actually you know it's one of those things is that we're connected with people on social media and we kind of see what's going on or at least we have a perception into that little window that gets shown on social media um, but it was just thoroughly beautiful just to reconnect with you, albeit <laughs> such is the world as well, via a computer screen. But yeah, I really appreciate that conversation with you with you last week. Um, can you give us a little bit of a backstory, uh, perhaps just to go back to what it was that um, brought you into that room in 2013? Mm. Like um, what was going on with you business wise, and what what brought you yeah into that room? Yeah, so. You know, you talk about there and here, and and actually the backstory is lots of theirs and here's, and it goes back quite a long way. Mm. I I was very first exposed to what I think would broadly call personal development or personal transformation in 1996, and I had a career, a kind of corporate career that kind of trotted along and evolved. There wasn't any grand plan. It was just I just kind of fell into it, and. And, and then I fell into something else and fell into something else. And I ended up at Ernst & Young as a consultant. And, you know, in the consultancy world, there's kind of a model that you come in as a high-flying graduate and you go through this kind of 
funnel process and you get to 35 and you're a partner or you're out, you know. And, and I didn't become a consultant until I was 35 and there I was in this organization as a lateral hire, completely at odds and at sea. And, and I think for the first two years that it, it was quite clear I wasn't doing that well. And they introduced this course called the Peak Performance Program. And it was kind of for people who were not good enough to succeed, but not bad enough to fire. We kind of all <laughs> sat in this room looking around going, I think we all know why we're here. <laughs> and, uh, but, but the good side of that was that it kind of had a, it was really powerful. It gave me some insights that you could become self-aware, you could change things, you could, uh, use various tools and, and, and they, they, they wanted us to use tools to help grow ourselves but actually sell more business and be better consultants I mean, there's no doubt about that and and actually the, the, a lot of the material that's presented was from tony robbins and which i didn't really know at the time but i i loved this and it really had a big impact it had a big impact on me it had a big big impact on my outcomes in in, in my environment it was a real success story and and so i was now passionate about this idea of personal development and personal mm -hmm. transformation. And so I took that into my next role and into my next role. And there I was in a company in 2004, 2005, uh, 2004. And I had, had, coaching, had coaches in to help all my people. So I was you know, on the journey of being committed to coaching. And uh, one of the guys who worked for me, who was organizing all of this, he, he said, oh, one of the companies that we work with has offered me this ticket to go and see Tony Robbins, can I expense the travel expenses? And I kind of said, absolutely, as long as I get a ticket. <laughs> so it was kind of <laughs> from, from a bit of a weird place. And I, and I know this is a long backstory, but I think it's kind of, you know, but it fills in lots of the, the journey. The, yeah. So I then went to see Tony Robbins in 2004, and I thought, I'm successful, I've got a big house, I drive a Porsche, I'm a director of a big of FTSE 100 company, and you know, what have I got to learn? Because I've, I've had this journey of peak performance for eight or nine years now. I know where I'm at. And, you know, about eight hours later, I was kind of lying in the fetal position on the floor, sobbing my heart out. And it had a really big impact on me. And, and I think at that moment, I kind of uh, bought into this much bigger possibility of personal transformation. And, and really committed to it. And I think that was my first big step into being a coach because I left that job. And I left that job in 2005 in a moment. I, I was literally on a train and I opened my laptop and it was all these emails and I thought, I'm just, I just don't want to do this anymore. And I sent a message to my boss, said, I know you're doing a restructuring. You could take my name off the list. I'm not coming back. It's like... Uh, and to add, to add an interesting spice to it, Truda was three months pregnant with our first child. And, uh, and I hadn't actually discussed it with her. So you could argue that you could, you could make a point that that's a pretty bold move mm -hmm. given our situation. And the ambition was, was to become a coach. Now, the truth was I did some coaching, I did some training, I did some big performance work. And it was kind of Robin's style type stuff, NLP-ish, uh, but also... I kind of fell into this role of doing some consulting work that one of the big suppliers I worked with where I was in this job, they thought, actually, if you come and work for us, you can help us sell to more people like you. 
And so I did some kind of sales coaching type stuff. So it was kind of businessy type stuff. And, and financially, it was incredibly lucrative. Um, but it wasn't quite what I was looking for because I really wanted to coach, not consult yeah. or work in corporate. Yeah. And so that, that kind of bumped along for quite a few years until 2012. And at the end of 2012, this organization that kind of drawn me more and more in, and I had attempted to quit three times in 2012, and each time they said, no, 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 please stay here, have some more money. And, and to be fair, it was incredibly lucrative. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it's hard to say no. And then at the end of 2012, we kind of had this new, we, we had a new contract we negotiated where I would do more coaching and less consulting for a little bit less money. And three days before that was due to start, they fired me. They just said, we're not going to do it. And oh. with no notice, no warning. And so there I was really having wanted to let go of that corporate stuff and really wanted to be a coach and really just focus on coaching. I was then cast adrift almost unexpectedly having planned for it and then had that, had that plan taken away from me I then was then cast adrift and I spent 2013 really exploring lots of different things that I could do potentially to be a coach and then I discovered the book of the of the event uh, that we're talking about and I came across this book and I thought oh well this is amazing this is really what I've been looking for this is this is a you know, I, I felt I could breathe because, oh, the pressure's gone. I can, I can sell by just loving my people and serving them, you know, to the, to, to the bottom of my heart. And that would create clients. And I thought, I love this. And I thought, I'm going to get coached by this guy. And then I found this event in 2013 that I went to. And I thought, I'm going there to be coached. And I had no idea what it was about. And I think, so that, 2013 was a big transformation for me. And that really spilled over to 2014 because I having, having gone to this event and it, it, it was very emotional. It was a, because it was nothing to do with my coaching business and yet it was everything yeah. to do with my coaching business. Yeah, yeah. That I look back now and this was, I actually can feel, I can feel some energy coming up into this. That I look back now and I think what was happening then and what continued to happen for some time after that is I wanted to be a coach. I had this idea that I was going to make a lot of money. I had this idea that by modeling certain people, I could charge $50,000, $100,000. And I got kind of caught up in that. That I loved the idea of serving people deeply and being really present for people and coaching deeply. But I also got kind of caught up in this idea of it being about money and part of that event was you know the the game where you would go out and, and, and try and win some deals in, in an hour and, and all that sort of stuff and and, I, and actually looking back I kind of missed the point of it because the point of it was to understand how to ask for things and get a no yeah <laughs> but what but what but, but what was important for me was to come back and say I'd had this big success yeah. and and actually that led to me sitting on stage being coached in a room of 50 people uh, and realizing what I think was behind a lot of that need to be successful, to be approved, mm -hmm. which was the idea that I've never had a father. 
and what happened in that moment in that coaching was I was asked this question, which is, uh, have you ever grieved for your father? And, and actually, it never occurred to me my father had even died because I didn't know my father. And, and so what happened in that moment was my father literally died to me. And I, and I was just cast into this death, this void of grief. And actually, there was something important in that because the other side of that grief is this idea that I had a father who might have loved me, that I might have had that bond, that because how could I have grief if I didn't actually have that bond, even if it was entirely made up or instinct or whatever it was, whatever was behind that, there was clearly this vast energy behind that. And I think it was probably two, three, four years of processing that grief that was triggered in that moment that, that led to me shaping a coaching business in a certain way that actually wasn't about me. I was still mm. wanting to be successful. I was still wanting to make money. I was still wanting to charge big bucks. And that, that, that doesn't, you know, I don't want to negate the fact, I think, I think in that period, I did some great work and some great coaching, but I think there was this underlying need that I was still trying to fulfill. Uh, you know, and that phrase, you can never get enough of what you do not really need. It's absolutely true. That was one of the most powerful things I've learned in the last seven years. Yeah. And it's so true. I, I was trying to, to fill a hole that had no bottom. It was impossible. Hmm. And, I, and, I, so, and so when I left that room in 2013, my idea was I was going to be a, you know, I was going to be, a, there was almost this race of who was going to be the coach to sign the first million dollar client that wasn't Steve Hardison or Tony Robbins. Um, that, that I wanted, you know, that I was going to be that guy that I was going to be making half a million dollars a year and I was going to sign a million dollar client. And, and it was just, looking back, it was just not me. Mm. It just wasn't me. And so, and so what's happened since then is, what's emerged is something very different. Yeah. So, so the idea of being this very highly paid, high profile coach doesn't mean anything to me anymore. That, you know, I, th I think that, uh, I think, and I've said this to you before, that one of the things I've learned is that some of the best coaching I've done are people who've afforded to pay me a few pounds, not thousands of pounds or tens of thousands of pounds or dollars. Because, you know, this is a mantra in coaching that this thing about the big fees to sign a commitment. Well, the big fees are a sign of someone who's got some ability to pay a big fee. Yeah. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily commitment. I think it's just an ability to have a big fee. That some of the most committed clients I've had are clients that, who may not have paid me anything. I remember one, I had one client and she really was in a very bad way financially. And I said, she had to pay something. She paid me five pounds for eight hours of coaching and it transformed her life and it transformed her family's life as well. And that, that was what is important. That is, that's not what, that's what, that is what is important. It's not about the fee. Yes, I need to make money. I need to pay, you know, the last little bit of my mortgage off and, you know, feed my kids. Uh, but that's all that stuff that goes with the money just became so much less important to me. It was about, 
beautifully serving somebody was what became important for my coaching. And so, so where I've ended up is, it's kind of a long, long story, but where I've ended up is I have three parts of my work life, which is something evolved out of my coaching. I, I coached somebody back in 2005, 2006, who phoned me up in 2007 and said, that work you did with me was amazing. I've decided to set up my own business and to say, in recognition of, of your contribution to that, I'd like you to be a co-founder, a shareholder, and, and become one of the directors. And at the time, you know, that's great. Giving me some equity in a company that doesn't know anything, may go, may go nowhere. It's, it's not really, you know, it, it's a lovely gesture and it may not go anywhere. And, and it's actually grown into a multi-million pound company. So part of my life is I'm still a director of that company and I spend a little bit of time helping run that company. And, and so that's part of my life. And, and in the sex and cash game, the human cloud model of sex and cash, yeah. that's definitely, you know, I, I love it, but it's, and it's a cash project. It kind of keeps me the, the basics afloat. So I, I don't have to worry about that. And then I do coaching. I still coach with people. I still love listening to people, hearing people, giving them a, a little nudge and here and there to think about certain things and seeing how that might evolve into something for them. But I think the thing that's most powerful for me is what's emerged out of this idea of what I had come to understand or see as deep coaching, which is really about deep listening and listening in silence, is to combine that with filmmaking. Mm. to simply sit with somebody in an intimate space in silence and just allow them to unfold and have a camera catch that capture that intimate sharing that you know often very vulnerable often very profound um and that that has become my most powerful work i have no doubt that's become my most powerful work i have seen shifts in that work in it is kind of odd because the actual filming itself might only be 60 minutes or 90 minutes but the process is much longer for the for the subject and i've seen things happen in 60 to 90 minutes that wouldn't happen in the years with the coaching yeah you know, it, it's just, just incredible so, so that's a long, very long oh, answer to your question, Phil. There's a lot in there as well. There's a lot in there. I want to go back really to, <clears throat> it's like I notice, oh, I'm making some assumptions here. So I, I kind of just want to check. I want to check with those because, you know, an assumption here that you've built, if you're in a lucrative um, line of work, you built, uh, <laughs> I guess, those of us who have experienced that, I, I was in corporate in a very lucrative role. I built a lifestyle around that. And then moving, changing careers whilst trying to maintain that lifestyle as well. Um, looked like, anyway, it looked like it brings some extra pressures. Of course, if we dive deeper, we can see that that's not what's really going on. But in any case, it was like, oh, so it all made sense that oh, I really have to make the big bucks, so to speak, from coaching, because, you know, I've got this lifestyle to, to support. So I wonder, you know, what was that really like for you? Was, were you aware of that? Did you feel pressure from that? And indeed, were, were you creating 
gosh, I even hate the term, by the way, Dave. I can have a little rant here because I see this on Facebook all the time as well. Like people saying, you know, I'll help you sign your high fee paying client. And I have to say, I, I, I kind of fell into that. I'm going to call it a trap, actually. It is, it is a trap because it, in my experience, it takes us away from our heart. And um, I often think when I see that now, would you tell your client, hey, I want to sign you as my high fee paying client? You know, and, and I don't think anybody would really do that. That just kind of feels really kind of icky to me. That is pretty icky, isn't it? You wouldn't yeah, do that. You just wouldn't. <laughs> So um, anyway, yeah, I just oh. wanted to really, what was the, what was that like for you? That 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 attempting to transition, did it get did it get off the ground? And also, there's, there's I know there's a story in there that we've touched on a previous conversation about the moment of realization that we're not really living the kind of coaching life that we want to. Like, how did that come about? Mm. So, so I think the immediate. Shit. So we'll go back to that 2013, that December 2013 kind of pivot point. So in 20, for the whole of 2013, I was living off cash in the bank that had built up in that previous kind of corporate thing. So there was quite a, quite a bit of cash in the business. And, and to be fair, what was interesting was having had that level of earning that I had like sort of 20, you know, for about three or four years before that, when I stopped doing that work, and looking back now, this is obviously crazy, but when I stopped doing that work, I didn't alter my lifestyle because I had this buffer in the bank. Mm -hmm. I continued to have that lifestyle thinking, you know, when this runs out, I'll just go make some more. Yeah. And, and, that's, you know, and that's one of those things that you hear a lot of coaches do, you know, don't yeah, worry about it. that, that's you know. Yeah. Go and, you can always create some more. And, and to an extent, I kind of get that, and, and yet I'm not sure how true it is. And so there I was, continued to live that lifestyle as if I was earning the, the, uh, the big fees I was getting. And, and that lasted all throughout 2013, a little bit in 2014, but then it started to make some money. And at, at the start of 2014, I had a kind of a, an interesting little moment. I was helping uh, crew and manager Brendan Bouchard event in London. It was the first event outside of the US. And you know, Brendan's an interesting guy. He's a bit geeky. He's very good at the online stuff. And we had some great conversations, but also I got to sit at the event. I, I, was, I was staged security. So I, I, was his, I was his personal bodyguard. So I basically <laughs> got to sit at the edge of the stage. I, I had the best seat in the house wow. to, to see him do his stuff. And it was great fun. Um, and and he, he made the comment about, you know, the, play, the, the place to create a conversation is in groups. I thought, yeah, I get that. And literally on the break, I made this Facebook group with no real plan to it called Culture Chicken Limited. And I just started sharing every day, sometimes three, four, five times a day. I was just downloading what was on my mind, you know, whether it was what I was worried about or what I was thinking about or a conversation I'd had or something that inspired me. And it, it was... It was raw. It was. It was really. I, I think from inside, it felt quite vulnerable. Some of the things I was sharing, and I think after a week, I had about six people join, and after six months, I think there were fifty people, maybe 45, 50 people. So it was very slow, very organic, and and I kind of got to that point after six months, which is, 
I'm not even quite sure why I'm doing this because no one's really joining in. You know, it's not creating anything here. Uh, and yet, I thought, well, we'll see where it goes. And I continue to do it. But it, it reached that kind of pivot point that it went from 50, to 50 people to 300 people in about three months. And, and so nine months after starting it, I thought, well, I, this is an interesting conversation. Lots of people are very involved in, in a dialogue. It's very interactive. It's really, you know, it's really buzzing as a group. And you know, mm. people definitely want to be in this group. And so I suggested doing a couple of, a couple of group coaching events and, and some live events. And it just sold out straight away. It, people just like, love it. And in the next three months, I made about £100,000 out of this group. It was amazing. And I, I, it was like I struck gold. So, so to an extent, it, it wasn't a plan. It kind of evolved organically based on that seed of an idea. And it was a place where I felt I could make the big bucks. But, and, and that's where it went wrong. Just a little bit of clarity. Was yeah. that from, I mean, we don't need to dive into the details, but I'm, I'm, if I'm asking this question, I always think probably a listener is as well. Like, so was that from sure. group events or a one-on-one or kind of a mixture of both? So it was three things. It was live events, so week, a weekend event, um, which was actually relatively low uh, cost, um, running a group coaching program, uh, for a group of eight people and picking up individual coaching clients. Mm -hmm. So over that kind of period, it created people who were connected to the energy of that group. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of coaching they wanted. That's the kind of work, the, the support they wanted. And so there was no selling involved. It was very easy to invite people and, and right. into conversations to create clients from that. And, and it was, and actually, it was, a, it was a strong reflection of my journey. It was a strong reflection of me. It was, it was an authentic reflection of me. What happened, though, is that that little thread of the success, the make the big bucks thing was still there. And so I thought, if I can make 100,000 out of 300 people, how much will I make? I forget, 3,000 people. Hmm. And that's when I killed it. I, I destroyed what I'd created because it tainted the water that I thought, well, if, this, if I got to this point organically with these people, what I can do is I can start to invite and promote it. So I started to invite and promote it. And, and the thing is, the kind of people who then joined weren't my people. There were people who responded to invitations and promotions rather than people who want to be part of the conversation. And so the original people left, and the new people weren't my people, and it was dead within three months. I'd have killed it completely. And then I archived it. So all the contents there, all the original great conversations, but none of the great people. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, really. I think there's such a such a important powerful message in that actually just it's such a it's such a wonderful example um of you know chasing the money rather than bringing heart into 
mm. business because you know as you touched on already and i can see <laughs> and i sense that really from your energy as well and when we when we spoke last week and, and listening to you talk about what's going on now it's it's so different and it and i and i and i feel your love your enthusiasm your compassion for what what's what you do now uh, i think it took me a while and i'm still putting it in context even from our recent conversation to help you put context onto i think what was happening then that there was this lifelong uh, and, I, and i think there's a you know you're asked how i got to here I think a part of that story goes back to when I was a child that, you know, I, I'm half Chinese, half British. And I went to a school that was, I was the only non-white person in the school. I was the only non-white person in the village. And, you know, I was bullied relentlessly as a child for being half Chinese. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that kids don't get bullied for other things, but I'm just saying that's, that was my thing. Mm -hmm. But the one thing, and this was in primary school, but the one thing I discovered is I was smart. And so, you know, without any effort, I would normally be top of the class. And so with a tiny bit of effort, I would just, there was clear blue water between me and everybody else from this, the kind of being intellectual, being smart, being able to use language better. And, and so I think that that need, that unrelenting need to be a part through success, it lasted for decades. And I think there was, you know, I think what was happening in 2013, 2014, 2015 was still vestiges of that, of needing to show that I was successful because of that wound that I was carrying for years. And, and what I see now, even now, when I look back and, you know, only three or four or five years ago, that I see that has shifted and that shifted a lot. And so, you know, one thing you said about, did I, did I have that pressure, the scoreboard pressure for life because I had a, an expensive lifestyle? Did I have that pressure to, to make the money to continue that lifestyle? The answer is to an extent, yes, um, because I still had financial commitments. I've still got a little bit of a mortgage to pay off. Um, and so I still need to have a certain level of income coming in. Mm -hmm. But the way we spend money now is completely different to the way we were spending money six, seven, eight years ago. And so we've cut our cloth to an extent. But I don't notice, I don't notice the things I'm missing. I don't notice not having a brand new car on the drive. I'm actually, I'm actually quite enjoying the fact I've got this 11 year, uh, sorry, this nine year old BMW that's done 158,000 miles. And I actually enjoy, I have this now inverse joy out of the fact, I'm going to see if I can get this car to 500,000 miles <laughs> because you know, you know, what's great about it is, you know, people go, oh, it's a BMW. Well, what's great about it being a BMW, it's a pretty high quality car to start with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't break. I mean, it just, yeah, you have this, it has a service once in a while when the, light, the service light comes up. It's, and it just keeps on going. Well, it's funny because um, <laughs> I tell this story really around, um, like some people might call it law of attraction. I call it law of creation. That This is several years ago. Uh, gosh, when did I buy the car? Um, 2000 and it doesn't really matter. 
ladder, 2007 or 2008, something like that. And it was about three years old. And there's a, a really lovely Mercedes, you know, it was like 47,000 pound new, but I didn't pay that. I paid, you know, about half that um, for a three-year-old car. It was really beautiful. Had done hardly any miles and whatever. But I just went looking, looking, looking around at cars. I just had this notion, hey, I'd really like another car. And at the time, mm, yeah, I probably could have done it. It would have been a bit of a stretch. But I, I just thought I would really like it. Let's, but let's see what happened. I, I kind of set the intention I'd really like it, but I wasn't that bothered about it. And then what happened was um, I was uh, freelance contracting at the time, and um, so doing like some coaching work on the side, full time in uh, in corporate still. And they did what they called a market realignment of uh, rates. And I just, even without asking, they increased my rate by 40 odd percent or something. It was it, it just, what? Oh, oh, okay. Okay, then. So I went and I bought this car and, you know, I've had it since. And um, a, a similar story to you. It's like, I, yeah, there've been times I could get another car, but I just really, I really quite like this one. Having said that, I've been living in Bali now for almost a year, and I think uh, my son Ben has has probably done uh, in that year. He's probably done about three years worth of the mileage I would use, used to do in it. But anyway, it's just it's just one of those lovely things, and it, there's a different mindset of enjoying something for what it really is, rather than like uh, impression if you like, as to yeah. like meaning yeah. that we give to that. Oh, I give the meaning to it being a nice new car, but I don't need a new car. And it, actually, <laughs> this just reminds me, I'm gonna, I am going to share this. I know this is the Coaching Life podcast, but hey, there's something in this story as well. This is, when I was about 18 years old, many, many years ago, this, um, we had, uh, you might, I don't know if you remember these, DEC VT220 terminals were like the new thing. Um, VAX VMSs, anybody listening to this who's a bit techie there might, might recognize these terms, but it's an old, on, an old terminal. And I worked with this guy who had one of the original, it was a, called a DEC VT100, really, really one of the first ever terminals, clunky keys. And I said to him, <clears throat> why didn't you get a new terminal? Because he was like senior manager there. What, why didn't you have the new terminal? He just said, well, I'm not going to get a new wife just because she's got a bit older. There's nothing wrong with this one. <laughs> and that's really stuck with me, you know. And um, yeah. we, here's, the, here's the thing, though, back, kind of back on track. It's just that chasing game, right, David? Like, like when you stop the chasing, there's all the joy that we, could be, that we think we can experience by getting whatever it is we're chasing – the joy and the love is already here, right? It's it's here. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I and I do want to talk about and I and I and I was reflecting on this when we after we last spoke. I do want to talk about what what I do now and the work, especially the filming work, because when I was thinking about it, yes, people pay me for filming, and I would do it for nothing. Mm. because I love the process mm. of it so much mm-hmm. and what it does. I love what it does so much that I, I would do it anyway. And so that's what's become important to me. Yeah. That 
I, I see some of the things that happened in front of the camera. And, and I say camera, it, it, uh, to talk about the setup of the, of the thing. So we'll be in a quiet space and we'll have two chairs that'll be exactly opposite each other and probably about a meter apart. And so I will sit with somebody and then we'll sit opposite each other. And, and that's quite an intimate space for, for many people that is an unnaturally intimate space with someone they don't know. Uh, and there is something about sitting exactly opposite somebody. Uh, I, I don't know if I mentioned that I, I did film uh, somebody and they were very keen to be filmed. We, we sat down, we started filming. And after about 20 minutes, I wasn't feeling it. I didn't, I didn't think we were quite getting to where we mm. normally get to. And so I suggested that we, we take a break. And I noticed that just as we turned the camera on, she'd moved her chair very slightly, so it wasn't facing towards me. It was facing slightly, only like five, 10 degrees maybe away from where it would, uh, from that directly onto me. And so we reset the chairs and we started filming again. And it was a completely different experience. It, it just created something very different, much more intimate. And so, so I sit with somebody. But there's no expectation, you know, people sometimes ask me, what do I need to do to prepare? And I've got this document, I, I call it the stillness process. And I have this PDF, and at the top it says the stillness process, and the rest of it's just blank. <laughs> and, and I'll send it to that's this is how you prepare. Because there is, the, the only preparation is you being there. Yeah. And, and people will come in and I'll, I'll invite them to, sit down and, and it's a bit clunky, you know, there's, 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 uh, there'll be mi a microphone boom and there'll be a, I've got quite a big camera. It's a big, you know, with a big lens on it and then microphones and stuff. And so it's, it's a little bit clunky sitting in that space. And yet what I do know is that as soon as we begin, people forget about the camera completely. I, I invite them to sit down, close their eyes and we'll breathe quietly for a minute or two. I'll put the camera on and I'll say, you know, whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes and whatever happens will happen. And I will simply sit with them and give them all of my presence. And that's it. And my, and my journey with this has been to be present for them, to be both empty and present, to allow them to speak into that space. And and the things that have emerged out of that space, it, the variety of things, is just incredible. And one of my very first films was with a good friend of mine who, she's a therapist and she helps people um, with PTSD in particular. And, and, I, and I share this because this is public, it's, been, it's a film that's been shared many, many times. Um, and she's very open about sharing it. That, we talked about filming for quite a long time. We'd never quite got around to it. And I was meeting with her one day to do some coaching. I said, well, actually, I've got the filming stuff in the car. Why don't we film for a while and then we can do some coaching later? So we got the camera out. And what came out, it's actually very difficult to watch. But what came out was her sharing for the first time what had happened to her five years early when her partner had beaten her into a coma and left her in hospital for months on end, having nearly killed her. And, and while she'd spoken about it 
she hadn't spoken about it, if you know mm-hmm. what I mean. And it just came out with all the raw emotion. Uh, that was very hard to, to film. It's very hard to watch. And yet, she said it was, it said that was like a year's worth of therapy, what came out in that moment. But it also came such a powerful message for her clients, for people who uh, have experienced uh, abuse or been in very difficult domestic situations. It's become, you know, they can see, ah, oh, it's not just me. It's, you know, and I'm not stupid. This is a professional person who, you know, should have known better. It had, there were so many messages in it. And it, it was such a powerful, it created a movement behind it of actually so many conversations has flowed from, from, that, from that film itself. But also for, for Anna, it became such a powerful thing for her as well to be able to just let go of it and to be able to do that in the space of, you know, 25, 30 minutes, just to let it out. And, and that's just one example. There are so many, many other examples of stories that have emerged about, in the same way I shared on stage in 2013, you know, those deep yeah. wounds that just we don't speak of normally. And yet, if, it, when the space is there, they can, there's an opportunity for them to be shared, to come out. And that's, it's just been amazing. And I think there's there's two important points here that, that are just occurring to me. One, there's a to me there's a fundamental principle to coaching, and that is presence. And that I've mentioned numerous times on this podcast. You cannot. It's like <laughs> you can't try and be present. You have to let everything else go. Presence is what's there when you've let every go of everything else. You know, and um, yeah, I just see it over and over again. And I guess. It's interesting, isn't it, to consider and wonder, I guess, I don't know if we can ever really know, but what role does the camera play there? But, um, yeah, I get it from you. There's, there's, a, there's such a power in that being present to somebody, being present with them. Mm-hmm. But also, I know that I think- through your own, sorry, just to, just to close this, and Bowen will come back to that, but, it, but, but that you have experienced that kind of breakthrough into a liberation like so you have your own version and know what it's like to be sitting in that seat yeah absolutely and and when i experienced that you know the coach was intensely present with me like no one else has ever has been and i think that's what enabled it there's no doubt that's what enabled it and but i will go i will go back to something about the camera which i think is important um because it's a combination of that presence and the camera that works it works because cameras you know by the way cameras are normally reductive you ask some you ask most people not all people but ask most people you know if they would like to film a camera and they kind of go uh, they kind of shrink away a little bit and it's reductive and you know the ego kicks in and all sorts of things start going on um in this process the camera is like a magnifier but i think the the part of the way part of the reason why it's a magnifier is that actually in the moment of the sharing i, I think people forget the cameras there the cameras are relevant it, it goes away. It's the presence that's important. 
However, what can happen is afterwards, there is a film of those moments of them being, the subject being deeply present. And there's an opportunity for them to see that. And sometimes an opportunity to share that. And so that adds new layers to that process of transformation because maybe they're hearing words that they've never heard before. They're witnessing themselves in a way they've never witnessed themselves before. And, and perhaps they're, you know, they're, they can potentially share you know, their, their inner story, their vulnerability publicly in a way that they've never done before. That couldn't happen without the camera being there, and so the camera definitely adds something to the process. Yeah, and it's also it's also probably an artifact as well because <laughs> when you invite someone to film, that they're, they're not necessarily being invited to have a a deeply vulnerable sharing. And you, I, I was like considering this like, it, like it, it's part of like the invitation to me. I'm feeling and, like the the camera plays a yeah. role in the invitation into that space yes. of presence. Yes. 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 You know, if I said to somebody, would you like to come and sit with me and share your deepest vulnerable stories? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm not quite sure that's exactly what I signed up for. And yet, if I say, you know, look at my films, I would love it if you'd come and share your story on film. I'd love it if you'd come and film with me. Or, you know, what, what would be possible from you if, you if you were to film? And so, you know, these kinds of invitations, it creates a different space. The camera becomes, you know, a part of the process even yeah. though it's not part of the process. So. Yeah, beautiful. David, you could have known um, that your business was going to look like this, you know, seven years ago. Uh, it, I, I just find that quite incredible, really. And uh, yeah, really beautiful talking with you about, and, and yeah, just being in your presence, even on these calls. As, a, as an aside, really, I, I some of my clients, I offer to record sessions, some, some people, um, take take that option. Others don't. But I also had, uh, and of course, there's you know pros and cons for that. Just simply recording conversations, even over Zoom. <clears throat> One of my clients said to me recently. I think he said he'd watched the replay four times, and he was still seeing things that and getting things from the conversation that he hadn't got before. So maybe that's something to consider, David. About you, because I'm conscious of the time here. But one thing I notice about you that you're you're right you come across a smart guy for sure you have a, a wonderful awareness of what's going on in the world and um you share how you see it you know the, the, if i look at your if i look at your social media it's not just a bunch of sales pictures it's like you're sharing life and, and i'm kind of like that too i just like I, I give people an opportunity to, to come and sit with me be it on social media as if they're a cafe with me or just coming to get to know me. And I'm, like, I'm totally cool with that. I, uh, I am going to ask the question, what do you, what do you just make of? Cause I, I have to say, I find it, I, I'm finding this current time sad. I find when I just reflect on what's going on, sadness, but not about, the C word or the V word or whatever, I find the division sad. And um, I'm, just, I'm just really curious, what is, your, what is your take on that? And I wonder whether there's just, yeah, I'm just, just curious about it, whether, whether there's something in, in there for us. 
it's interesting. As I'm listening to you, I feel a lot of emotion coming up. Um, I there are probably a number of little threads that I'm, I'm, I'm feeling as I, as I as as I sit with what you said there. I think partly because. Only a couple of days ago, I, I watched a documentary called The Social Dilemma. I, I don't know if you've seen it. It's a social dilemma. Yeah. It's about, it's about uh, the impact of social media on the fabric of society. And my reflection on the past year, my reflection on the past five years, actually, has been, I, have, I believe I've witnessed and been subject to social media creating a, a multiple set of truths to different demographics. Mm -hmm. And so, so what happens with that is that I sit in a certain demographic, which is probably, I would have described my politics as center left, but there is no center ground anymore because the, the optimization of the bubble I'm in has drifted further and further left. And so I get, I kind of get, in my social media experience, I probably get two experiences. One is a reinforcement of that kind of leftist liberal policy, but equally a reinforcement of the foolhardiness of a libertarian or conservative or right swinging policy. And so, I feel less inclined to speak to or listen to those not in my demographic and more inclined and feeling confirmed by the bubble that I'm in. But of course, like a fish in water, I don't know I'm in a bubble because it's being artfully crafted by forces beyond me. And, and I think that it's not necessarily, it's, there's not intention behind it. In, in a sense, I don't think anybody's sitting there thinking, I'll move these pieces this way and these pieces that way. I think what it is, and you know, you've, I think you've got a technology background, other people might have a technology background. You can get these goal setting tools in AI that you establish the goal and it'll find its own way there. But it'll find its, it'll find its own way there. It's not, it's not I'm giving it the rules to find its way there. If I say, if, if I want you to optimize this outcome, it'll find whatever way it can to optimize that outcome. And if the outcome is to keep someone on social media for an extra five minutes, then it'll do things that will make them feel better about being on social media, which is conf you know, confirming their bias, yeah. confirmation bias, yeah. you know, whether that's for what they believe in or anti something else. And so I think a lot of the division, and I saw some research recently that if you look at the, the median of the right and the left, that actually over the years, they're, usually, they're much closer than they have been. But in the last five years, they've drifted apart and polarized dramatically. Mm. And that's been, I, I think, directly as a function of social media. So I think it's an inc incredibly difficult time to manage the things we're going through. Because, you know, for every person that says we should do something this way, there's another demographic bubble that says, no, 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 that's a lie. We should do it this way, which makes it, it makes it immensely difficult to deal with. And I think that it's hard to find an answer to your question. I think, first of all, as people who do work from a space of love, how do we find 
more love? How do we find more truth? How do we find more humanity? That surely has to be an answer, but that, that also feels kind of a patsy answer because it's, it's what we would say, but how does, what does that mean practically? And the truth is, I, I don't know what it means practically. I think only on in, in an individual basis, in a particular moment, can we know. It's kind of one of my favorite questions, what would love do? But I'm not, I'm not in that moment, I'm not imagining, oh, my idea of love, what would that, what, what, what would align with my idea of love? That inquiry is to <laughs> inquire into the energy, it might be spirit, God, whatever. It's kind of like a little prayer, okay, to inquire in a, in a deeper way, what would love do here? And to listen. And, um, you know, uh, thank you for sharing that, by the way, David. I, the, the, I know the, it's funny, really. I, I can see now the purpose behind my question. I wasn't sure. I just follow. I'm the same as this in coaching. I just ask what occurs. I wanted to show uh, that piece of you that clearly is very astute, very observant, and, um, yeah, about what's going on. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Mm. Thank you for that. Mm. Really, uh, I, I, I will, well, if you, I'll just add one more thing. Yeah. Because um, you ask about these times. One thing which has really impacted me this year, far more than the C word, um, is the R word, is the rise of awareness of racism. Mm -hmm. <sighs> That's been... It's been hugely impactful for me. I feel myself, I have a lot of energy with that. And I just want to share that because you asked me what I'm saying about this moment. I think that if anything good is coming out of this moment, it is putting that agenda front and center. That although America is leading the way and not in a good way in bringing it to attention, much of what's happening in America, it's more subtle in the UK but it's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think it's surfacing a conversation which needs to be had. And so from that perspective, that's something I'm definitely sharing. I'm having that conversation. I'm speaking my mind. And it's actually raising questions about my identity. It's raising questions about who I am choosing to be and who I've chosen not to be in the past. And that has been, that's been an immensely powerful journey for me in the last few months. Thank you for that. Um, and I, you mentioned awareness. This is where I, uh, I've been feeling like a sadness really at so much division and what have you, but um, it is awareness. There's a, there is a, a positive side. If we, if we bring awareness into the idea of truth rather than believing in a single truth, just bring awareness into that and to look a little closer into uh, truth really as a concept. Then the, I think there's uh, that, that in a way I'd say opens doors, but it certainly opened windows into us to, to see beyond all those ideas and concepts that were fed. I mean, I talk about it. I, I released a book earlier on this year, the, 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 the joy of knowing, F all here it is. And um, you're really just talking about that, 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 that realizing that everything we think we know is still an idea. <laughs> mm. 
and yeah. and so to me it's funny because a few years ago i was in conversation with somebody who now calls themselves like a spiritual teacher or what have you but he he kind of refused to let me get off the telephone off the off the call because i got to the point where i agreed to disagree with him and 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 i was really astounded at that i was like okay i really understand what you're saying here but it doesn't look like that to me but that's cool thank you i i, I felt i had a deeper level of understanding he was like well that's no good agreeing to disagree and he was very adamant that i needed to see it the same way as him now, I think in all of these issues, and this is why when I talk to talk to my clients and we make initial agreements, there's what I term undefended openness. Let's go into these conversations with an undefended openness to see something new, even to see the idea of truth anew. And maybe we need to be able to see racism anew for like I know, like I, I feel this has come up in a, a couple of episodes ago with, um, you know, Harry Pickens that um, I think I said on that podcast, I actually, I notice I have some resistance around this subject because I know I'm pretty much ignorant of it. And that in itself is a, is a, is a privilege for sure, right? I am primarily ignorant of it. But, I'm, but what this awareness is doing for, for me at least is at least noticing that, like <laughs> bringing my unconscious incompetence into conscious awareness mm. and then being open to seeing something new and being open to understand. And what I was going to say was I have hope here is that, you know, I have uh, nieces and nephews in their twenties and um, I don't know, I always seem to mix with younger people as well, but there's a, if we, if we, <laughs> I think there's a there's a generation now, and I know if you've got um, boys. Are they teenagers? They're you've got yeah, you've, fourteen and twelve. Fourteen and twelve. There's like all the information is available now, right, for us to to research for ourselves, and I think that's a wonderful time to be alive. And I have much hope because these I see that that my nieces and nephews are so much more aware of what is going on, and what they haven't done is, you know, like me who's lived for 50 years and built up my own opinions about things that I can hold on strongly to. I notice that when I talk to these people, um, they're much more open to seeing beyond what is presented to them. That gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Hmm. David, I love these conversations. I never know exactly where we're going to go, but the idea here, this podcast is all about just getting to know somebody. You know, I want to bring somebody real on who's not just going to pitch their services. Just come and share with us what's your coaching life like. And uh, so, and I feel like we've done that. So I've enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> so um, I hope listeners will too. But um, yeah, I just really want to thank you. Thank you for, well, even going right back to um yeah that moment on stage i was in that room very very moved very powerful um and yeah and i really relate to various aspects of your journey too you know so uh just thank you for being willing and, and being willing to come on here and share with that undefended openness actually so openly and so beautifully i really appreciate you thank you very much for inviting me it's been an utter joy to share with you thank you for Thank you. 
What a lovely conversation with David. As with all my guests, I so appreciate his openness and honesty. That whole chasing money trap can be so compelling and always distracts us from the heart of this beautiful profession. And of course, our own hearts, our own passions, some might say our own being. And there it is again, presence, the heart of impactful coaching. And talking of heart, if you're enjoying these conversations, you'll also likely love the Naked Hearts podcast, where I chat with various guests in an intimate and undisguised exploration into the nature of relationships and connection. This is very much the core of my own work with my clients as a coach, helping people live and express their own naked hearts personally and professionally, and to enjoy intimate, loving, and fun, fruitful relationships in their work and in their personal lives. Head on over to Naked Hearts Podcast for links to listen and to subscribe and as always I'd love to hear from you and what you've got from this conversation this one with David and any others and how you will use that in your coaching life do get in touch and maybe we'll explore together how you can use what you've heard and anything else that will help you build your prosperous coaching life email us at coachinglife at philg.com and finally if you'd like someone with 15 years extensive experience as a professional coach in your corner and as your mentor in building your prosperous coaching life my six-month coaching life unleashed program may be perfect for you it has just four openings each year as i only work with two coaches at a time get in touch if you'd like more details or to get on the waiting list for this personalized intensive coaching and mentorship program that will support you in building your prosperous coaching life okay that's more than enough from me until next time thank you very much for listening i wish you much love and joy